The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. It bears repeating that all love, all real love, all life-changing love is sacrificial, substitutionary love. Uh, You've never looked at a a broken person and loved them. You've never loved a guilty person or a hurting person except it through sacrificial, substitutionary uh, love. Um, I don't know about you, but if you were ever in school and some kids in high school and there was a classmate that they considered to be uh, somewhat geeky or wasn't as cool as you were, maybe you were that kid, I don't know, or maybe uh, you were uh, the cool kid that was the friend or the kindness, uh, kind to them, but uh, nobody likes her, she's isolated, she's, she's alienated, and uh, if you tried to reach out to her and love her and be her friend, the next thing you know is that the other cool kids, uh, they're going to come to you saying, what are you doing with that person? And uh, what's happening is uh, some of that geekiness is rubbing off on you by association, isn't it? You don't look so cool anymore because you're hanging out with someone that's uh, deemed not cool. And you're not so cool if you hang out with her. And there's no way for you uh, to diminish her isolation without entering into it. There's no way for you to uh, make her, uh, if you would, more accepted without you entering into her inacceptability by others. That's truly what Jesus did for us, didn't he? He entered into our sinfulness. He entered into our state. He was viewed as a sinner on our behalf so that we could be viewed today uh, as believers as righteous. Uh, There's another example, I think, of this. As I read some years ago in the National Geographic that after a a forest fire in in Yellowstone Park, there were some forest rangers. They began to uh, trek up a mountain to survey the damage. And one ranger uh, found there a bird of which nothing was left but the kind of the carbonized, petrified shell. It was covered in ashes. It was huddled at the base of a tree. And uh, he was somewhat sickened by this eerie sight, so he, he prodded that, that, uh, that, that, you know, that carbonized, fossilized uh, bird there. And when he did, he uncovered the fact that three little baby chicks came running out from underneath uh, uh, the mother bird who had died on behalf of them, and uh, because she was willing to die, and those covered underneath her wings had lived. We can kind of think of what Jesus was talking about when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, ye that kill the prophets and stone uh, them that I sent to you. How often have I, what, longed to gather you in like a a mother as a hen gathered her chicks under her wings. And, uh, you know, he gathered Jerusalem under his wings. He was consumed. He gathered all of us under his wings. He took the price. He took the cost. He took the wrath of God. He absorbed it for us. And and the truth is, is that all real life-changing love is costly. It's sacrificial. It's substitutionary love. And we see that love is uh, shown to us on on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, When you look at ancient history, the Greeks and the Romans leave us with a lot of stories of uh, leaders and heroes that face death. And in their final hours, they usually paint them in some way of, in some heroic way, you know, that as they go to their death, if you think about Socrates, he was uh, condemned to drink hemlock as a means of execution. And he kind of goes out uh, saying these, you know, these heroic one-liners, you know, these, uh, these big uh, long words, that, you know, memorable things that he's saying and doing and showing strength. And the Jews, when they would write in accounts of major figures and heroes, they, did, they didn't make them 
cool and remove like the Greeks, but they kind of showed them like hot-blooded, fearless. They praised God as they were sliced to pieces by their uh, persecutors, and that was the way that they portrayed these heroes. But when we come to the end of the life of Jesus Christ, it's not the way that it's portrayed in, in the Gospel of Mark. It's, odd, it's an odd thing, isn't it, the way Jesus is portrayed at the end. As a matter of fact, he's more weak uh, towards the end than he had been before. He's, he seems to be, the Bible tells us, uh, as he comes to this place, verse 33 tells us, he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. It was almost like for the first time in Jesus' life, he was amazed at anything. He marveled at anything. He was perplexed at something as he was beginning to, if you would, take that cup of wrath, uh, the wrath of God that was about to be poured on, out on him uh, for our sinfulness. And there he is, and he's about to drink that cup And as the wrath of God is going to be poured out on him, he's beginning to experience what we experience in a sense of what we understand sin brings to our lives. How many know that sin brings uh, difficulty to your life? It brought death to your life. Uh, It brought destruction to your life. As believers, don't we even understand uh, the difficulty that sin brings to our lives? The destruction that it brings to our lives. Uh, The decimation that it brings to those uh, that are around us. And the Bible says sin when it's finished, what? It brings forth death. Boy, we shouldn't play with sin. We shouldn't entertain sin in our lives. We shouldn't give place to sin. Sin brings destruction to us. And as we look at this account of the Lord Jesus Christ, John Mark kind of gives us a picture of the final hours as he's facing his death. And he records here what Jesus was going through. And he says he came to a place named Gethsemane. He says to his disciples to sit and pray. He, he's heavy. He's sore amazed. The Bible says he, he describes it this way. Verse 34, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. As we read this account, I think probably one of the accounts in the scriptures that reveal to us really the depth of the love of God. And that's what we're going to look at today. And I want to look at first the cost of God's love, the cost of that love. How many of that all... True love has a cost. We talked about it, sacrificial, substitutionary uh, love. It has a cost. Uh, Cheap love is not real love. Uh, Love that only costs someone else something, love that takes from someone, love that only gets from me is not real love because real love costs me something. If I'm going to love someone, it's going to cost me. That's why sometimes it's difficult for, for believers unless they really embrace and submit themselves to the Spirit of God, let's be honest, we can't love each other without God's love in us. It's an impossibility. Uh, We can pretend like we like each other. That's even possible for an hour a week. Are you with me? We can pretend that we like each other. We can put on airs. We're not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to let brotherly love continue. We're supposed to love each other like brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, like the family of God. But sometimes we really are not loving each other. It's not costing us anything. It's not driving us to sacrifice anything in our lives. And truly, that is, that is the cost, isn't it? When we understand how we're supposed to love each other, we look at the love that God has for us. What kind of love does he have for us? Well, what did it cost him? It cost him his life. It cost him everything, didn't it? And that's the kind of love that he's put in our hearts, and that's the kind of love that's truly in the hearts of believers. It's a love that causes us to lay aside ourselves, right? It's a love that causes us to love each other the way Christ loves us. It costs us something. It's sacrifice. It means laying aside time, energy, effort. This is what love costs us. 
We understand that. And if you're married, you understand that in relationship with your spouse. If you have children, you understand that in your relationship. But what kind of relationship doesn't require commitment? Are you with me? What kind of relationship doesn't require commitment? It's amazing that today people, they back away from commitment to the, in the relationship with the church. You can't love God unless you love his bride. You can't love God unless we love one another. The Bible says if a man say he loved God and hate his brother and doesn't love his brother, you say, well, I don't hate anybody. Well, if you don't love your brother, the Bible says you don't love God. If we don't love each other, then we don't love God. We can say we love God, but if we don't love each other, the proof is that we don't love God at all. Loving God is loving one another. Jesus said on this, all the law and the prophets saying that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and that we love our neighbor as ourself. I mean, the truth is, is that all of us naturally love ourselves and we'll make other people pay a cost so that we can get more love for ourselves. But uh, how many understand that you're not willing to pay a price for true love unless you truly do love someone? Unless you, uh, unless you really have love in your heart for them. As we look at this cost of love, Jesus hears just before his execution, he opens his heart to his disciples. He opens his heart to God. He opens his heart here to the readers of, the, of Mark's gospel. He lays bare his struggles, his agony, his fears about facing death. And then he turns to God and he pleads. He says, is there any way that this cup can be taken from me? Is there any way that I can be left off the hook? Is there any way I can get out of this? Up to this point, Jesus is completely in control. Uh, Nothing seems to jar him, not even when they took up stones to stone him in the temple. Nothing seems to astonish him or amaze him, but now all of a sudden, he's heavy. He's nigh unto death. He's sweating, as it were, the Gospels would tell us, great drops of blood. He's desiring uh, to move on from this, doesn't want to go into this, asking that if there were anything possible else that could be done other than this, to let it pass from him. Jesus is struggling because he knows what love is going to cost him. We all struggle with that a little bit, don't we? You ever struggle with that? You know what love is going to cost you? I think it's why we don't enter into relationships lightly, marriage lightly, having children lightly, because we understand that these are relationships that are going to cost us something. And if we truly don't love the person, boy, it'd be bad for us to go into that uh, situation, wouldn't it? And we love someone, boy, how, how many of you understood how much love was going to cost you the day you got buried? You didn't really understand it, did you? You had some fantasy view of love then. It was that we were forever going to be in this state of, you know, uh, uh, just just complete joy and all the time, you know, just elation and everybody was going to look at us and constantly see that we were in love all the time. I mean, that, that's this kind of the immature, selfish view of what we believe love to be. But we said at the marriage altar, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and in health, hoping that none of those other things, negative things, would ever come. We were smiling so much at the positive that we never believed that any of those negative things would come, but then they came, right? And when sickness comes, when poverty comes, when difficulty comes when sin comes, what do we do in those situations? Well, it shows how much of Christ's love we have in us. You know, the Bible says that while we're yet sinners, God commended his love toward us. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're reminded of this often because I think sometimes we view ourselves 
more highly than we should. We view ourselves as savable. We view ourselves as salvageable. We view ourselves as, well, God knew what I would become, and that's why he saved me. Well, truly, he didn't know what you would become, but that didn't keep him from saving you either. You know, God looks at us and knows us. He knows our frame. He knows uh, who, who we are. He knows everything about us. He knows our, our obedience and our disobedience. He knows all the things that we'll do, but yet he was willing to suffer the consequences of sin for us on our behalf. One, because no one could do it for us but him. Uh, Two, because we would perish unless he did it. He was so overwhelmed by his love for us that he knew that he had to die. He knew he had to take that or the, the, the alternative was that he just let us perish in hell. He could just let us die. He could let us perish. How many glad today that he was not willing to do that? that he was willing to lay himself down for us. If there was truly a way, if there was another way, it's interesting because religion presents a lot of different ways to get to heaven, doesn't it? As we look at the religions of the world, there are a lot of paths that lead to nirvana. There are a lot of paths that lead to, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. There are a lot of paths that lead to this place of rest and peace where there's no sickness and no dying. and no You know, there's a place that everybody wants to go to, that everybody believes that we uh, will eventually get to. But it's all presented in different ways, isn't it? And, and Jesus asked the question here in the garden, what is the cost of this love? I mean, what is it going to cost for people to be able to come and receive forgiveness and to, and to be for God to be just and for God to be loving. For God to be a just judge, he had to pour out his wrath. He had to pass judgment on. He had to, the, the, the crime that was committed was worthy of death and death had to be taken. And so Jesus here is struggling in the, in the uh, garden. He's tasting what he will experience on the cross. The Bible says it goes far beyond physical torture and death and And at the heart of this very prayer, he says, take this cup from me. And I want you to think about that cup as we think about the second thing. Not only the cost of love, but the wrath of love. Number two, the wrath of love. If you think about Jesus as he's about to be separated from God because of our sinfulness. Exclusion from God is exclusion from light, from love, from understanding, from wisdom. Jesus is being separated from God as he's the wrath of God's being poured out on him as he was being made to be sin for us. I think sometimes we have this um, kind of short-lived view of Jesus suffering for our sins. It's all on the cross. But clearly in the garden, he was beginning to suffer for our sins. He was beginning to be made sin for us. We go back to the Passover lamb. Before the lamb was killed, the sin was applied. The sin was placed on. It was, it was, he became the scapegoat, if you would. He became the one that the sin was applied to. Now, because of that, we, don't, we look at that. I mean, if not, look at that spotless lamb. Look at that cute little lamb. Is there anything in that lamb that's worthy of death? Does anybody look at a lamb like that and say, oh, let's kill it? I don't think anybody looks at the lamb. I think we look at the lamb we feel sorry for. We look at the lamb we think it's beautiful. We look at the lamb and we say, don't kill that. We, I mean, let, let me love that. Let me embrace that. Let me hold that. Let me keep that. Remember with the Passover, they, often, they would take that lamb into their house. It would be like a pet to them. And then they were going to have to take that lamb. They were going to have to kill that lamb. What did that show to them? Well, it showed to them that that's what sin does. Sin destroys. 
But their sinfulness destroyed things that they loved. That uh, when they looked at that lamb, there was nothing that was desirous, if you would, that would say, ah, I want to bring death, I want to bring destruction, I want to kill here in this situation. But as we look at the Passover lamb, uh, Jesus being that Passover lamb, the, the sins of the camp, the sins of Israel are applied to that lamb. And then what? That lamb now deserves to die, needs to die. Uh, In order for that sin to be paid for, blood needs to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's what? No remission of sins. And um, here's the problem. I think a lot of people, they have this problem when we look at God because they say, if God is a God of love, then how can he be a God of wrath? You ever hear that? You ever hear people talk about that? They say, "I, I want a God that's a God of love, but I don't want a God that's a God of wrath. And the problem is, is that if you, if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. Um, please think about it for a second. Let that marinate for a second. Loving people can get angry, can't they? Uh, not in spite of their love, but because of their love. In fact, the more closely and deeply you love people in your life, the angrier you can get. Um, have you ever noticed that when you see people who are harmed or abused? you get mad. Um, If you see people abusing themselves, you get mad, don't you? Uh, Out of love. Your your senses of love and justice are activated almost simultaneously. It's at at the same time, not in opposition. If you see people destroying themselves or destroying other people, and you don't get mad, it's because you don't care, right? It's because you don't love. I mean, if you can see people destroying themselves and hurting themselves, and you you have no response or reaction to it all, then it's a pretty good indication that you have no love in your heart. But when you love and you deeply love someone, boy, the uh, response of anger is even heavier, isn't it? It's deeper. It's strong. When you you love someone, you can get angrier. And And that sense of love and justice, again, they're not in opposition, but they work together. If you don't care, you're too absorbed in yourself, you're too cynical, you're too hard. But the truth is, the more loving you are, the more ferociously angry you will be at whatever harms the ones that you love. And the greater the harm, the more resolute your opposition. You know, if you think about it, uh, someone that loves their garden hates their weeds. Are you with me? I mean, how could you be such a wonderful person that loves your garden... And you could go into that garden you could, where you had planted, you could pluck up by the roots. I mean, just like throw it in the trash. I mean, what? you don't care for those weeds? No, because you love your garden, you hate the weeds, don't you? Now, nobody looks at that and says, well, you're unloving. You must be an un- unloving person. No, you're actually more loving when you do that, aren't you? If you look at someone's garden, it's full of weeds. They basically don't care about their garden. Would you agree with that? If you, if you don't do anything about something that's negative, then you don't care about it. But when something negative enters into a relationship where I love, the more I love someone, the more angry I get. Do we then understand how a God of love must be a God of wrath? That God must love us, but God must hate sin. Because sin is what destroys us. Sin is what brings... uh, uh, brings the whole purpose of Jesus having to die on the cross. His son had to be killed because of our sinfulness. And when we think about God's wrath, we usually think about God's justice, and that's right. 
Those who care about justice get angry when they see justice being trampled upon. And uh, we should expect a, a perfectly just God to do the same. But, you know, we don't ponder how much his anger is also a function of his love and goodness. The, the Bible tells us that God lo- loves everything that he's made. When God spoke all of this into existence, he said it was very good. And that's one of the reasons he's angry. It's what, what's going on in his creation. He's angry at everything or anyone that's destroying the people in the world that he loves. And his capacity for love is so much greater than ours, isn't it? The depth of the love of God. The Bible says it's unsearchable. So his capacity for love is deeper than ours, and his capacity for wrath is deeper than ours. He's angry at anything and anyone that's destroying the people who he loves. The, the, really, the, the word wrath doesn't really do justice to how God rightly feels when he looks at the world. Um, so it makes sense to say, or really makes no sense to say, I want a wrathful God. I don't want a wrathful God. I want a loving God. If God's a loving and good, he must, he must be angry at evil, angry enough to do something about it. I want you to consider this too. If, if, if you don't believe in a God of wrath, you have no idea about your value, do you? Here's what I mean. A, a God without wrath has no need to go to the cross and suffer incredible agony and die in order to save you. Uh, picture on the left a God who, who pays nothing in order to love you who just loves you but doesn't cost him anything. And picture on the right a God, the God of the Bible, who, because he's angry at evil, must go to the cross, he must absorb the debt, he must pay the ransom, he must suffer immense torment. And how do you know how much the free love God loves you? And how do you know how valuable you are to the free love God? You have no value. Because there's no cost. There's, there's no price that needs to be paid for that love. There, nothing that costs in loving. I can't just look at sinfulness and say, well, I just because I love, I can just ignore it. Any more than a parent who loves their kids can look at their kids when they're doing something self-destructive or something to hurt themselves and say, well, because I love you, I'll just let you do what you want. I'll just ignore it. Now, love takes action, doesn't it, against things that are just self-destructive. Love takes action against things that are, are, are going to hurt the people that we love, even if they're wanting to hurt themselves. And here's the truth. We were hurting ourselves. We are lost. We're we're all together, together, the Bible says, become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. We were sinners, but we were sinners that just were so unable not to sin, and, and we couldn't heal ourselves or help ourselves. And our conception of God's love and of our value in His sight will only be big as our understanding of his wrath. People that don't like the bloodiness of the cross don't understand this. They don't understand it. You look at the cross and you see how much Jesus suffered. It shows you how valuable you are to him. What he was willing to go through and for our salvation and how valuable it is our salvation to him uh, in a correspondence between uh, C.S. Lewis and a man named Malcolm, it's, uh, it's collected in a book, it's called Letters to Malcolm, uh, chiefly on prayer. But in one letter, Malcolm said that he was uncomfortable with the idea that God gets angry. And he found it more helpful to think about God's power and justice like an electrical wire. And he said this, he says, the live wire doesn't feel angry with us, but if we blunder against it, if we touch up, we rub up against it, it's like a shock. 
And C.S. Lewis replied this. He said, My dear Malcolm, what do you suppose you have gained by substituting the image of a live wire for that of an angered king? You have shut us up all in despair, for the angry king can forgive, but the electricity can't. Turn God's wrath into mere enlightened disapproval, and you turn his love into mere humanitarianism. The consuming fire and the perfect beauty both vanish. And we have instead a judicious headmistress or consentious magistrate. It comes of being high-minded. Liberalizing and civilizing analogies can only lead us to astray. In other words, again, our conception of God's love and of our value in His sight will only be as big as our understanding of His wrath. But do you have a problem with seeing God as an angry God? A God who's angry with sin? A God who's angry with the wicked? A a God who judges sinfulness and unrighteousness? A God who says that if you do not receive the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, that the punishment for those that are not under the blood or the, uh, the, the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ is death in hell. There's such an extreme to that because that's what our sin deserves. That's what sin brings to our lives. It brings death. It brings eternal separation from God. But, you know, humanitarian efforts are just like, well, we make ourselves look better. We try to make ourselves look more presentable. And that's what religion does a little bit too. That's why it's hard for a religious person to come to Christ. Because they got all this religion and the religion's been busy telling them how good they are because they've tried really hard. They've worked really hard. I'm, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good citizen. I, you know, I do good things for, I think good thoughts towards, a, you know, I'm not a horrible person. But what about the sin in your heart? What about the secret sins that nobody knows about? What about the things that are destroying you from within? and robbing you of true peace and joy and love and and the ability to have peace with God, but not only the peace with God, but the peace of God ruling in your hearts. How do we get set free from the consequences of sin? How do we get set free from the power of sin? Well, we must be absolved of it. We have to be forgiven of it. And by the way, it can't be just, I get forgiven every time I do something wrong. Or I get forgiven in the last moments of my life. Are you with me? But that I am in a constant state of forgiveness because of Christ's sacrifice and what he's done. Because of the blood that's been applied to my life, his blood. It shows me my value to him. It shows me just how much he loves me. Jesus was not coming to replace a broken religious system with another broken religious system. Jesus came to abolish the broken religion of the world and bring into it an ability for us to have a connection, a relationship, and an intimacy with God that would never be possible. Listen, why can we say, like Jesus in the garden in our suffering now, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. You notice what Jesus said? It's it's like what we would say, Daddy. It's like what we would say, a term of endearment. We would not use it, those terms, you know how you you have your pet names for each other. Generally, in public, you shouldn't use those, right? They're kind of, you know... If you do, it makes everybody around you feel uncomfortable, you know, and, uh, you know, but we, we tend to, we like to do that. But he, here's the truth. We're so close and intimate with God that we can talk to God the way that Jesus talked to God. We can be as near and close to God as Jesus is to God in his suffering. And I don't know about you, but when you're suffering, you need to be close to God. 
But what we tend to do is we tend to run from God in suffering. And how Jesus suffers here in the garden informs our suffering, doesn't it? It helps us to understand how we are supposed to suffer in life. Uh, Do you ever have this wrong picture of suffering or the Christian life? Sometimes we have this picture of the Christian life. And the prosperity gospel that's in the world today is, is by and large propagating this view. Is that if you're blessed, you're healthy and you're wealthy. Everybody wants to live forever. Even Christians today are trying to find out ways to, you know, the body is, you know, can be healed by all means and no, no death is going to... Listen, understand. It's a point out that a man wants to die. We're all going to die. Unless the Lord tarries, we're all going to die. I know that that is not a fun thought today. I know that maybe not what you wanted to come, you know, here at church. You wanted to feel good. I understand that. But all of us are going to die and dealing with that fact... And being ready for that fact is is of utmost importance because if I'm ready for my death, then I'm ready to live. But if I'm not ready for my death, then I'm never prepared to live because I'm always in fear of what's going to happen when I die because it's at the back of my mind that I could die today. I could die at any moment. It doesn't matter. One thing happens and we're dead. Are you with me? Life is fragile. Life is a vapor. It doesn't matter how fit you are. It doesn't matter how healthy you are. It doesn't matter what food. Listen, I, I'm with you. We should steward all of those things. Those things are important. I'm not trying to make light of them. But I think that in our culture today, there's this idea that we are going to still find this fountain of youth that doesn't exist. We are not going to live forever in this life and in this body. It's not going to happen. It's appointed unto us once to die. And we need to be prepared for that day. Because when we die, after this, the Bible says, comes the judgment. In other words, when we will stand before God. And a lot of people, they struggle with that. Well, why doesn't everybody that just dies, if God loves them, why don't they just go to heaven? Why doesn't God just say, everybody gets to go to heaven if he loves them so much? Because he's a just God. Because love that's cheap isn't real love. Because love that just gives everybody a path. This is how much God loves us. He sent his only son to pay for our sins. And this is how much we love ourselves as humanity. We don't care about that. If we can look at the cross, we can look at what Jesus did on the cross, and we can pass by the cross saying, I don't care about that. Then we truly understand how sinful truly in our hearts, how how much we just love ourselves. Because if I can look at the cross and see that was For me, a lot of people look at the cross and say, oh, I didn't do that to Jesus. The Romans did that to him. The Jews did that to him. No, he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. God's wrath was poured out on him for me. That's what you and I deserve. The cross is what we deserve. The cross is the death we deserve to die. Jesus died a most horrible death. The Bible says he was willing to be obedient to death, even the death of the cross. But that kind of wrath shows us how valuable we are. And then the last thing today, the obedience of love. The obedience of love. Suffering happens, uh, we might say, uh, when there's a gap between the desires of our heart and the circumstances of our life. Do you agree with that? Suffering happens. Are you with me? You got to think, okay? I'm not just going to say everything and you just in one ear and out. You got to think. Think with me. Suffering happens when there's a gap between the desire of my heart in the circumstance of my life. In other words, I didn't get what I expected. I want something, and I didn't get it. And that's what suffering happens. The bigger the gap, the greater the suffering. And a lot of times, that's what happens in our lives. What do you do when the gap gets too wide? 
Well, one response is to change the circumstances, right? To get off the path that's taking you into suffering. And, and, and sometimes that's the right response, isn't it? Our present circumstances may really need to change. You may have circumstances in your life right now that may need to change. But that would be, uh, there may be a very unhealthy relationship that needs to be ended, put on a different course, a medical condition needs to be treated aggressively. We shouldn't accept all circumstances with some kind of fatalistic idea to life. But many people have a pattern with dealing with almost any suffering. And this is their pattern of dealing with it. Get out of town, break promises, pull out of relationships. Run, isolate yourself. How many know that that can be the pattern in suffering? That people tend to, when they're going through something difficult, is I got to leave where I am, I got to get out of here, I got to start over. I can't stay here. I can't stay in this. I've got to get out of what I'm in in order to get away and out of suffering. And we break promises. We pull out of relationships. We run. And we try to go someplace where desires are satisfied because we consider our desires all important, which makes really circumstances all negotiable. They're willing to to do practically anything to avoid suffering. And the problem is, is that life circumstances rarely oblige that kind of thinking. Try a new set of circumstances, and the truth is, is many of us will need another set in six months. Are you with me? You're not going to be happy with the geography in six months. You're not going to be happy with whatever situation you are in six months. You can keep changing your circumstances, but it doesn't change your heart. And uh, as you look at things that are in the world, when we, when we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus appears to be taking another approach. He's, he's not taking the way of detachment. He's pouring out his heart. He's undone. He's honestly and desperately asking God here to change his circumstances, praying that if it be possible, that the hour might pass from him. He cries, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. But then we look closely, and there's a word that changes everything, isn't it? It's nevertheless. He shifts from, God, I know all things are possible to you, and you could remove me from this circumstance. But he says, nevertheless, and then here's our prayer, church, not my will, but thy will. Not what I want, but what you want. A lot of times that's the prayer we're not willing to pray when God doesn't change our circumstances. We ask for circumstantial change, and it's all about what we want. And God says, your circumstances aren't going to change, because they can't change. This is my will. Was it, let me ask you a question, church, was it the will of God for Jesus to go to the cross? It's hard for us to say yes to, because we know, the, we know what's going to come from that, right? It was the will of God for Jesus to go to the cross. So we understand it was God's will because nothing changed after Jesus prayed. He still had to drink the cup, didn't he? He still had to take the wrath. He still had to go through and endure the suffering. But in love, there's an obedience that comes, isn't there? When I truly love, I can obey. When I love God, even if that obedience calls for my suffering, I can still trust and obey him. Are there times when true love calls for suffering? 
It does. Especially in human relationships. I mean, we're just two sinners that said I do to each other, aren't we? Uh, We're not going to behave perfectly. It's interesting we have this idea. And then, listen, I think new in in our faith, we have the same idea with the church. We talked about this in Sunday school. Somebody else brought it up. I didn't have to bring it up, but... This idea that I go to church and everybody in church is also going to treat me the way I think I should be treated. And you see that people don't do that, and then all of a sudden, ah, I don't want to go there anymore. Well, is that the way that maturity responds? Is, I mean, is that the way that we're supposed No, we understand, right, that people, when offenses come, and then God gives us the way to lovingly handle offenses, right? In your marriage... Are you going to have offenses? Is there anybody here that would say no to that? You're going to have offenses. It's not if they come, it's when they come. Pretending that there's no offenses is ridiculous. It's insanity. Acting like there's nothing wrong is insanity. Facing them and saying, yes, there is going to be offenses, there's going to be problems, circumstantially, I'm going to have... And should we ever compare ourselves among ourselves? How many know that it's, it's death to your relationship when you compare your relationship to a former relationship or you compare your relationship to another relationship of someone else that's in your circles of friendships? It's terrible because you're not in their relationship and you don't know intimately the details of their relationship. You're judging that relationship on the basis of what you know about it, which is very limited. And when we judge ourselves that way and compare ourselves, some of us, we're doing that. We're even sizing each other up as we are here. You're sizing me up. I'm sizing you up. We're looking, well, you know, you only know your, your knowledge of who I am is not intimate. It's, it's limited. I mean, even, even though we know each other well, you don't know what I'm struggling with. I don't know in your heart, in your life right now, what, what exactly. I know some of your struggles. You know some of my struggles, but we don't know them as closely as God does. And here's the truth. God loves us so much that he is never willing to abandon, abandon us ever. The truth is about God's love is that he knows we're going to disobey him. He knows that we're going to walk away from him at times. He knows that we're not going to follow him like we should follow him. And he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. How many need that kind of love? I need, to, I need to be loved that way, and I need to love that way. Are you with me? And that's the kind of love that God says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for. And it's an impossibility without first having received this love. We love him because he what? First loved us. But notice what he's doing here in this situation. Jesus relinquishing control over circumstances, submitting his desires to the will of the Father. He says, Not what I want, but what you want. He's wrestling, but he's obeying in love. At the end of the day, he's saying, it doesn't matter what I want. It only matters what you want. That's love. That's how we know we're loving. Uh, It would still be possible at this 11 hour for Jesus to abort his mission, to leave us to perish, but he doesn't consider that an option. He's begging the Father to carry out the mission in some other way, but he doesn't ask him to abandon it altogether because as horrible as this cup is, he knows that his immediate desire to be spared must bow before his ultimate one to spare us. Because there's a deeper desire in his love, isn't it? It's not just that he would be spared. 
there's a deeper driving desire is that God would spare us, that he would love us, that his love would be set upon us. And that was the will of God, wasn't it? Jesus doesn't deny his emotions. He doesn't avoid the suffering, but he loves into the suffering. That's the kind of love we need, a kind of love that can lean into the suffering. That not just, hey, listen, I'm with you. I don't want to suffer. But I want the kind of love that's able to lean into the suffering and absorb it, to take it. That's, that's what Jesus did for us, and that's what he says. Listen, isn't that what forgiveness is anyway? Sandy offends me all the time. I always pray to the Lord. How many times? Seven times, Lord? What he says, seven times what? Seventy. In other words, if you're keeping track, I don't even know if you can do that math this morning. But if you're keeping track, you're, you're not understanding forgiveness is what he's saying, right? In other words, forgiveness is me leaning in and absorbing the offense. It's me saying, I know that what someone's done to me has hurt me, but I'm willing to absorb that and let it go. And who gets freed when that happens? You do. Because if you don't, you're a slave to your own suffering. You always have to relive what someone's done to you because every time you see the person, every time you think of the person, every time you remember the person, all you remember is what they did to you. And that's how you know you didn't forgive them because you haven't absorbed it. Forgiveness is leaning in and saying, it's not forgetting. We don't have the capacity to forget. It's saying, I absorb all of the wrath. I absorb all of the the punishment. I absorb, listen, I'm removing, I'm taking away my ability to lash back out at someone for what they did to me. And now I don't even have to think about it anymore. I'm alleviating my mind, having to think about it. That's the kind of forgiveness we need. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. He tells us how to forgive. Not, don't forgive the way everybody else forgives in your life. Don't forgive like society forgives. Don't, don't apply forgiveness like psychology presents forgiveness. Forgive like Christ forgives. Absorb the wrath and move on. That's what Christ did for us. And what did it do? It set us free, didn't it? And, and freedom comes from that. Jesus is obedient to the will of God. He says, yet not, I, not what I will, but what you will. He's subordinating his loudest desires to his deepest desires by putting them in the Father's hands. He's, he's saying, if the circumstances of life don't satisfy the present desires of my heart, I'm not going to suppress those desires. I'm going to surrender those desires. Sometimes that's why we continue to not be able to forgive, because we just suppress instead of surrender. How many know that submission and surrender is not suppression? Suppressing my desires just buries it. Surrendering surrendering them gets them away from me. It, It takes them away. That's what God wants. He wants us to surrender those things, not to suppress those things. How many have ever buried something? You buried it. Either a sin you committed or a sin someone committed against you. You buried it. You buried it so deep, you didn't forget it. You didn't remember it that often. But how many know you, you, get, you dig it up real quick as soon as the, the person does something wrong again? While they're talking, you're digging, digging down, 
trying to find that bullet you buried so you can load your gun. You have the gun. You don't have any ammunition, but it's down in the ground. You know where the box is. You're just, while they're talking, I'm getting my ammunition. You just wait. When you're done, I'm not listening to anything you're saying. I'm just waiting until <laughs> I'm, well, I'm going to have it ready. As soon as you are done talking, boom, 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 boom. And I got more ammo than you got because you've done more wrong to me than I've done wrong to you. That is not forgiveness. That has no place in the kingdom of God. And it has no place in the life of a Christian. It is not a picture of the gospel. Is a picture of how we should have been treated, but how Jesus was treated for us. Jesus never did anything wrong, and he suffered the, most, the, the, the worst kind of death that anyone could, could suffer, having done nothing wrong. And he absorbed God's wrath so we wouldn't have to take any of it. And today, I'm not forgiven because I'm good. I'm not forgiven because I tried really hard. I'm not forgiven because I joined the church or I helped in the church, or I gave to the church, or I did this or I did that. I'm not, because of a label on my life, I'm not forgiven. I'm forgiven because I'm loved by God. And Jesus loved me, and he took my punishment. He took my death. He took my suffering. But does that universally get applied to everyone? No. It doesn't universally get applied to everyone. The blood is applied to the doorposts. In other words, you have to believe that what God says is true, and you have to take that blood, and it needs to be applied to your life. Universally applied, it has no effect. In other words, people say, well, Jesus did that, so that means we're all forgiven, right? No, no, it doesn't mean we're all forgiven, right? It means that your response to that is important, because, again, if you can walk by the cross and say, hey, free pass to live my life how I want to now, you missed it. You missed it. Because what you understand when you pass by the cross is that that is your life on the cross. That is your sin on the cross. And if you come to the cross, you don't walk away with your life. You walk away with His. Because that's what gets exchanged at the cross. Salvation is about an exchange. If the exchange never happened, then you didn't get saved. In other words, there needs to be a point in your life where your life was crucified on the cross and his life was applied to you. That's what imputed righteousness means. That means his resume, his life, was applied to you. You don't come to the cross and go, yippee, Jesus died and now I can go live. You come to the cross and say, that's what I deserve. That's the death I should have died. My life is now on that cross, crucified with Christ. And I live... Because I walk away not with my life, but with his life. And now, when God looks at me, he doesn't see my life anymore that deserves hell. He sees his life that's been applied to mine. I'm not the same anymore. How about you? I'm not who I once was. Not because I turned over a new leaf or I tried harder or I joined another faith religion, but because Jesus has saved me. There's a sermon called Christ's Agony by Jonathan Edwards, and I just wanted to just read just a portion of it to you as we close today. He says this, Edwards says in the sermon, In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had been a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames 
and see the glowings of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. And there are two things that render Christ's love wonderful. Edward says this, number one, that he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great. And number two, that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. But in order to its being properly said, Christ of his own act and choice endured sufferings that was so great, it was necessary that he should have an extraordinary sense of how great these sufferings were to be before he endured him, endured them. This was given in his agony. That love whose obedience is wide and long and high and deep enough to dissolve a mountain of rightful wrath is the love you've been looking for all of your life. No family love, no friend love, no mother love, no spousal love, no romantic love could possibly satisfy you like the love extended to you at the cross. And all other kinds of loves will let you down, but this kind of love will never let us down. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.